Hello, and welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. This is part two of episode two, where we've been talking about the history of mass incarceration. In the decades since the cocaine and heroin epidemics, policymakers began what author Marie Gottschalk calls a race to the bottom. Not wanting to appear weak on crime, public officials advocated for anti-crime policies. Cut after cut to prison budgets and programs intended to benefit prisoners, like substance abuse treatment, education, and professional development courses, left incarcerated people without opportunities to improve their life chances while they were incarcerated. Government officials, like now infamous Joe Arpaio of Arizona, boasted about harsh conditions in their jails and prisons. Arpaio famously had incarcerated people in Maricopa County in tents during summers in the Arizona desert through blistering heat. In fact, the sheer amount of time that many incarcerated people spend outside of the workforce makes it extremely difficult for them to re-enter the workforce once they leave incarceration. While many incarcerated people do work while incarcerated, they don't have the same opportunities for workplace advancement as their unincarcerated peers. Once they re-enter society, incarcerated people with work experience often have difficulties explaining the context of their work experience without revealing their incarceration status to potential employers. The race to the bottom, the worsening conditions of incarceration, and ever-lengthening sentences make long-term post-incarceration success extremely difficult. While the war on drugs and tough-on-crime legislation played a significant role in developing mass incarceration, they didn't affect all communities equally. Here's what Joshua Miller, adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University in the Department of Philosophy and Director of Education at Georgetown's Prisons and Justice Initiative, had to say about the relationship between race and the prison state in America. So I was initially interested in prisons just because they're a part of um, a system of oppression for African Americans in the United States. But um, I became much more interested in prisons when I started working in them. Um, In particular, I would say that uh, the, exp- the kinds of things you think about prisons when you work in, and live in them, especially, are very different from the liberal pieties about prison. Um, that the primary problem, for instance, is nonviolent drug offenders. And if we would just release them, we wouldn't have a mass incarceration problem anymore. Later studies found that the updated drug and criminal sentencing laws were enforced most strongly in a small number of densely populated urban communities. In these areas, nearly 4% of black men between the ages of 16 to 34 were incarcerated in the span of a single year. 
The comparatively massive numbers of young black men being sent to prison disrupted families and communities within those areas, which may have actually elevated the crime rate. The widespread belief that incarceration and policing reduces the crime rate is fundamentally flawed. In fact, scholarly studies have not proven any consistent relationship between policing and the crime rate. When policing and incarceration goes up, the crime rate doesn't predictably fall. But uneven law enforcement and policing practices have been a fact of life in America since before the war on drugs even began. Black communities and impoverished communities, as well as communities of immigrant groups, were historically excluded from many of the social benefits that allowed wealthier and primarily white communities to develop and prosper. Some of these policies actually helped create the overpolicing of poor and predominantly black communities. In the 1940s, huge numbers of black Americans moved into cities, searching for economic opportunity. In these cities, the number of available jobs just didn't match the demand for employment. The black Americans who moved to these cities were deeply frustrated with the lack of jobs, and the persistent problem of unemployment fueled the flames of discontent and social action in cities like Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. If you take into consideration the fact that the black unemployment rate hovered around 7% for the following decades, in contrast with 4% unemployment of white Americans, the challenges facing growing black communities seem even more drastic. In the 1960s, President Lyndon B. Johnson declared his famous War on Poverty, which Harvard historian Elizabeth Hinton says, quote, is best understood not as an effort to broadly uplift communities, but as a manifestation of fear about urban disorder and about the behavior of young people, particularly young African Americans. War on Poverty policies focused on changing individual behavior rather than the root causes of poverty. Most lawmakers viewed African-American poverty as reflecting fundamental flaws in black communities, rather than as a reflection of a lack of economic opportunity. Johnson himself believed that there were deep, corrosive, obstinate differences between impoverished black communities and white communities, quote, radiating painful roots into the community and into the family and the nature of the individual. Shortly afterwards, Johnson began a war on crime that increased police forces and patrols in urban areas, the same poor communities occupied primarily by people of color that the president believed were flawed at an individual level. During the war on crime, local police forces were outfitted with everything from riot gear to tanks and bulletproof vests. Johnson applied extensive police forces as a remedy for lack of economic opportunity, a trend that later administrations continued. Today, poor communities and areas with large Black and Hispanic populations continue to be subject to very high levels of policing. As you might expect, increased policing didn't create economic stability in these neighborhoods, but instead meant that more community members were incarcerated. Thanks to the policies prototyped by Johnson, these community members weren't looking for employment any longer, and they weren't advocating for increased access to employment. Instead, they were ripped from their communities, destabilizing families and social networks. Instead, these policies just increased the presence of police and established an economy of prisons. We'll discuss some of these economics of prison development more in the next episode.
But it wasn't just crime policy that led to America's current carceral state. You might be surprised to hear that even decisions like housing policy helped create today's prison system. In the 1930s, the government established a system known as redlining. A department called the Federal Housing Administration designated areas on a scale of first grade to fourth grade. The government would guarantee loans to people who lived in areas that were higher grade. These policies made home ownership affordable to huge numbers of Americans during the three decades that the Federal Housing Administration operated. But it turns out that the Federal Housing Administration explicitly refused to back loans for people who lived in primarily black areas, lived near those areas, and who lived in low-income neighborhoods. Those areas were put in the lowest category, fourth grade. As a result, poor communities and black communities didn't have the same opportunities to develop economically as areas that were primarily white. The neighborhoods couldn't enjoy the benefits provided by the Federal Housing Administration to improve one's home, increasing personal wealth and promoting community development. Huge wealth disparities developed between the upper-grade, primarily white areas and the lower-grade, primarily black areas. It's fairly easy to trace how this housing policy created that wealth gap. Although these policies have long since been lifted, redlining still left white and wealthy neighborhoods with much higher property values and correspondingly higher personal wealth for residents. Now, many of the wealthy neighborhoods with good schools funded through property taxes are completely inaccessible to low-income families and people of color. The wealth disparity and historic division of neighborhoods creates communities that are segregated based on socioeconomic class, and in many cases, segregated by race. Public school systems, based on location, end up being similarly segregated. Public schools with comparatively fewer resources, for instance, a lack of qualified teachers, lack of funding for special education services, or even insufficient numbers of textbooks for the numbers of students, makes it very difficult for children to succeed in school. Many schools strapped for resources have incentives to push out low-performing students. In order to improve their academic performance numbers and gain access to increased funding through government initiatives like the No Child Left Behind Act, schools employ what are called zero-tolerance policies. Similar to mandatory minimum sentences, these policies automatically impose harsh punishments for specific misbehavior, regardless of any extenuating circumstances. Many minor infractions can result in the expulsion or suspension of a student. In a lot of cases, schools have brought police officers inside their walls to patrol and maintain order. The incorporation of police in the classroom has led to a significant number of school-based arrests, mostly for nonviolent offenses. These initiatives and others like them employed in struggling schools contribute to a phenomenon known as the school-to-prison pipeline. The ACLU defines the pipeline as a disturbing national trend wherein children are funneled out of public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. The communities most affected by the school-to-prison pipeline are the same communities that Johnson targeted during the War on Poverty and the War on Crime, and the same communities defined by redlining. Years of government policy, social dynamics of race and class, and the development of the nation's prison system left America with a remarkably harsh justice system.
Our justice system today is fundamentally retributive. Laws and court systems focus on penalizing an individual for breaking the law, deterring crime through the threat of punishment. America's prison system is unusual because it's so severe. If you compare the U.S. with similarly developed European countries, you'll see that Americans serve longer prison sentences for the same crimes. They're more likely to receive life sentences without parole, they have higher minimum and maximum sentences for murder, and serve longer amounts of time for other sentences. These immense disparities are new. They all developed within the last 50 years. Back in the 1970s, American prison sentences were nearly identical to those issued in Europe. The United States places prisoners in solitary confinement for longer periods of time and much more frequently than its peer nations, a practice that the United Nations considers a form of torture. American prisoners live in facilities that are overcrowded and much more violent than those in other developed nations. They don't have access to benefits like education and job training that are commonplace globally. Especially in recent decades, as budget cuts have reduced the programs and resources available to incarcerated people, Americans in prison endure much greater physical and psychological hardship than their global peers. Incarcerated people in the U.S. also have far less access to rehabilitation programs and spend unusually long amounts of time in parole programs that restrict their movement and life choices after they leave incarceration. In other words, people in the American prison system serve longer, harsher sentences, have fewer opportunities for personal development, and remain under the control of the justice system far longer than is typical for people in wealthy, developed nations. So, what's the takeaway for this episode? The American incarceration crisis didn't appear overnight, but grew over the course of decades. A number of different social factors and government policies, from the redlining of neighborhoods to public school policy, sensationalization of the war on drugs, and anti-poverty efforts, all helped develop a remarkably harsh and surprisingly large prison system. Declaring a war on drugs, a war on crime, or a war on poverty didn't treat the root causes of issues that America continues to grapple with today. Most importantly, policing and incarceration as a response to drugs, crime, and poverty disrupted communities and families, but didn't provide solutions to those issues. While the prison system might have developed as a response to social issues, it isn't solving them. And we need to take a long, hard look at how we can better address these ongoing crises that our nation still struggles with today. Incarceration just isn't cutting it. Saquon Merritt, who I introduced earlier, had a call to action for all of us who care about mass incarceration and are active voters. So to those that are uh, citizens that, um, that are civically engaged and active and, you know, uh, voting for certain legislation and certain crime bills to um, get rid of crime and to um, hold people accountable for crime. Um, start voting on bills to after you, after these people are sentenced to a certain amount of time, figure out what's going on while they are incarcerated. What, are, what is happening that is going to curtail them or um, maybe deflect 
their their thinking to not committing this crime again. Um, that's what that's what I tell them. It's it's some things to all of those that you know are you know um, that are you know crime you know anti crime you know advocates. Pay attention to what's happening to these offenders while they're incarcerated, because for the most part, they are coming home. And that shouldn't be looked at as uh, a threat. That should be looked at as a reality that these people that you are, you know, voting for, that you're looking on at the news, like, man, they should have the book thrown at them. When they get the book thrown at them, are they picking the book up and reading it? Or are you just throwing the book at them and they're just deflecting it and you're sending them away into this cell for 10 years, 15 years, five years, and they're not having anything to nurture or change their mindset? So if you're just looking at, you know, throwing time at these guys, you need to really look at what your, what your legislators are doing or what your... Uh, you know, a uh, public safety commission is doing when they're housing these offenders. Mm-hmm. Are they helping these offenders? Are we just housing and nurturing uh, worse criminals mm-hmm. to unfortunately maybe come home and do something maybe even 10 or 20 times worse mm-hmm. than their original offense? Mm-hmm. So to them, you know, that's what I say that to, man. Uh, help us. Help yeah. us. Talk about some programs that, you know, uh, 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 try to change, change our mindset. Thanks for listening to the second episode of Reformed. In our next episode... We'll discuss the economics of prison, including the use of prison labor, for-profit prisons, and how the Great Recession affected mass incarceration. If you're interested in reading more about some of the subjects covered on today's show, check out James Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own, for the history of the war on drugs in Black communities. Try The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander to learn more about American policing and drug policy. Or, Read Unusually Cruel by Mark Howard to compare American and European justice systems. Thanks again for listening. Thank you to the band Broke for Free for the music used during the making of this episode. 
Our intro and outro song is their track XXV. In this episode, you also heard samples from their songs My Luck, Playground Pigeon, and If. Check them out online.